I'm John Chambers, and today we're having a discussion about tech disruption. Uh, this literally is the opportunity that I enjoy the most on Chambers Talks. When I have a chance to interview somebody I admire greatly, that I will actually learn a tremendous amount during the session, and she or he can share their thoughts with all of you. Today, I'm talking to my very good friend, Hans Vesberg, uh, Chairman and CEO of Verizon. Hans and I have known each other for decades. We, we got to know each other clearly when we were teenagers, but I've watched his career develop uh, over the years, uh, starting with when we met when he uh, was at Verizon, uh, held many leadership positions there, volunteered to be the CFO for three years. And if you really want to learn a business, you do it from the CFO side. But then moving on to president and CEO of uh, Ericsson in terms of the direction and bringing innovation to Ericsson in a way that was often unusual uh, for many of uh, his peers uh, on the global stage. He's very active, uh, not just in the corporate side, but also uh, in giving back and the corporate social responsibility and the environmental issues with the WEF's Edison Alliance with the Leadership Council of the United Nations on Sustainability and Development, and with board members on UN Foundation, the Whitaker Peace and Development Initiative. He has an MBA. Uh, he's Swedish and married with two wonderful children. He's fluent. I'm, I'm still mastering one language, English. He's fluent uh, in English, uh, Swedish, Spanish, and Portuguese. But perhaps what I enjoy most about Hans, he's courageous. He has the ability to see market transitions occur, understand their implications, and take risks that very often leaders are hesitant to do. He's a great listener, but when it comes time to make a decision, he makes it and he moves forward. He truly is in the telecom industry, one of the top visionaries, but he's also bold on innovation, uh, understands the foundation of how you're making money today, but knows that if you don't disrupt yourself, you get left behind as you move forward. He's also committed to giving back on bridging the connectivity gaps, which perhaps telco and 5G can do more than any other industry with making people inclusive on a global basis. So Hans, I thank you for today. Uh, it's exciting for me. I'll try not to mess this up and we'll have fun together. <laughs> thank you, John. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here and it's a great to speak to you. And I, I just as a side uh, detail, when you were doing an introduction, that was far too long, of course. But anyhow, you and I have known each other for a long time. But uh, you might not remember the first time we met, but that was actually uh, early in 2009 or mid-2009. I had just been appointed to be the CEO of Ericsson. It was six yes. months away. And we were at the telecom conference and somewhere in Middle East, it was the ITUCLE telecom conference. And you walked up to me and said that, here is my mobile phone number. Call me any day you have any challenge in life. And, and I can tell you, uh, remembering then, that you were one of the biggest ever in the telecoms, and I was no one uh, doing that. That made my day and probably many years ahead for me. You, you were just brilliant to, to reach out to people and creating networks that uh, is very helpful when you have a tough time. So I just wanted to tell that to all the, the listeners. You were just amazing on reaching out to people and having contact with people on all levels and really supporting them. You know, what's interesting, our goal today is to help share best practices, lessons learned, mistakes made with the audience uh, of the 258,000 uh, followers on LinkedIn and Twitter and others. But you just hit one of the most important elements. Something that an individual when you're new in a new job that we all remember is who reached out and offered to help. 
And secondly, uh, when you're in a senior position and successful, reaching out to a new player in the area is something they remember forever. So first, it's the right yeah. thing to do. Secondly, to establish trust early goes a long way. And third, it's fun. So yeah. let's let's have fun in this session. I'm going to jump right in, however. Uh, one of the toughest things that we've both watched in the industry, whether it's from Cisco, my perspective, now with 20 startups, you've seen from Ericsson, you've seen from Verizon, is we're often taught in MBA school, both of us which got our MBAs, you just keep doing the right thing, just 5% better every year. When in fact, in the industries enabled by new technology transitions at an increasing rate, and the compaction of time into what used to take a decade or two into one to two years, doing the right thing for too long can get you into more trouble than actually taking risk and occasionally making mistakes. First, do you believe that? And secondly, how did you have the courage to both disrupt at Ericsson and to disrupt at Verizon when it would have been so easy just to continue to do the right thing and your shareholders wouldn't have criticized you, your management wouldn't have criticized you, what caused you to change and what lessons learned perhaps for the uh, listening audience could you share? I think you're absolutely right. Uh, it's very easy to be complacent, and, and uh, uh, but I'm a strong believer that you need to have a model where you can actually invest in the current business, uh, future business uh, and emerging business. And uh, seeing that you do your capital and resource allocation uh, toward that because the biggest problem at least when you're running large corporation is that you 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 allocate money in an unproportional way uh, that is not leading to a change and that's sort of what I've been working all my life to see that I have a holistic view on capital and resource allocation so I actually have a three-pronged model with the current business and the next generation business and then emerging business then of course they don't get equally much but I just need to see that I'm holistic with it meaning that I'm not only giving money i need to get resources i need to get go to market you need to do it the whole way and that has in large corporation it is fairly complicated but it's the only way to get the transformation um if i just mention quickly on uh, on, on uh, my last uh, uh, challenge here taking over verizon which of course is a fantastic company i come into a company that is uh, the most profitable telecom carrier in the world. It's the largest telecom carrier in the world, extremely successful. And, you know, uh, you don't come in and say, I need to fix the shit because it, it's actually going pretty well here. But what I had done is that when I came in uh, in 2017, I wrote a white paper where I thought the market was going and what the changes we need to do already now to capture that market. That white paper is called Verizon 2.0 today. And uh, I worked very hard to see that I get full buy-in from management. I partly divided my work in three buckets. Uh, the things I wanted to keep, the things I needed to improve, and the things I needed to change. Uh, that was three buckets. And it, the reason I did it was, first of all, I wanted everybody at Verizon to feel very proud of what we're going to keep because there were so many things that were great. Then there were things that have we started. We have started to, to work in. I wanted to strengthen them, so I talked to them. And then I had a long list of things that I wanted really to change. And I think that got the full buy-in from, uh, from the leadership. And, uh, and the other thing I did is that I, when I started, I, I was new to the company. I did uh, 256 one-on-one -on -one meetings, uh, 30 minutes, with the 256 highest leaders of the company. Wow. Yeah. And I had decided the question I wanted to ask. I didn't give them the answer to my white paper because I hadn't shared it yet. 
but I wanted to understand how far away my vision was from the top 256, because that also told me how hard we need to work together on communication on certain areas I wanted to change. I'll give you one example. I mean, we had four different networks. You can say we had fixed network, mobile network, enterprise network, and we had uh, sort of wholesale networks. Nothing was stitched together. In my vision, in order to have sort of uh, ubiquitous computing connectivity that is seamless, I needed to build a network from the data center to the edge and in one way. And then at the edge, I decided what type of access you're going to have, 4G, 5G, whatever. Nobody brought up that with me in the conversation. And I knew when I come with that proposal, I'm going to have a culture shock in the company. Why are you mixing wireline and wireless and all of this? And of course, that, that sort of was one. Many other things like the go-to-market I changed. We're going to be consumer. We're going to be business and media, which was a change from how it was organized. Everybody brought that up. So that was a given. People or my leaders, they thought that they told me how to do it. So again, it's very much to listening having a plan, how you want to transform, but to also recognizing the strength that you have in the organization. That was a little bit what I did in Verizon 2.0. You know, it's exciting because you basically combine a financial background uh, and a business background with an innovation background. So you're able to understand the implications and how it plays out and do the trade-offs of asset realignment, et cetera, on it. how did you communicate it to the employees? You started by saying you you made them part of the decision from the very beginning. But as you know, in business, for any of us listening to this podcast, you can have the best strategy, the best vision and how to get there. But if you don't communicate it, if people don't buy in, if you don't get the existing people buying into it, but the people who also want revolutionary change buying in, you fail. Expand a little bit further beyond the 256 uh, individual interviews. How did you communicate that out to the company? And how did you create that need to change, yet the pride of we do an awful lot of things well that we're going to build upon as well? So as I had then defined the strategy where I wanted to go, how I wanted to serve the four stakeholders, society, employees, customers, and shareholders. I also created a, a, the cultural operating system, basically the purpose of the company, the internal values, the external values, and then the leadership principles. I put that all together, and we basically trained and uh, co- had conversation with all 150,000 employees that we had in that moment. So everybody needed to go through the process of what we call the edge training because that's what we call it by then and 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 all our employees was part of understanding the purpose how things together how we show up for each other and for customers and how we want to be perceived as a brand outside and then of course what are the leadership principles for the leaders in the company and we trained everyone in that totality and everybody had the chance to be part of that conversation to understand how they interpret it in their way so it was a massive work we did, and we trained every one of the 150,000, and everyone was part of a sessions, breakouts, to discuss this uh, over a more than one and a half year, I would say. Uh, and, and, and this is a ongoing, of course, we update, etc. But many things that we decide in Verizon 2.0, we keep them because one of the worst things you can do as a leader is you, you come out with your vision and the values, and, and then you start. Sh- doing small tweaks on them and especially in a company where we have 150,000 employees and probably yes. some nine levels from me to to uh, to the lowest leader 
if you start changing, they can never capture it. So you need to be consistent on your messages. That's more important than actually uh, improving them slightly. You know, when you think about consistency on the message toward the end goal, uh, you're four years into this uh, on it. uh, And as a CEO, when you make major fundamental change in the direction of a company, it takes you a year to drive it conceptually through, multiple years to implement it before you start to see major changes on it. How satisfied are you with the progress and uh, what are the key left to be done areas that you want to make sure uh, that you continue to expand on? So if I look back on uh, what we wanted to do in Verizon 2.0, it was many things. Uh, change the go-to-market, change the whole design of a network, which the network where we in, we invest last year, we invested $20 billion in our network. So it's no small things we're trying to change here. Uh, but not only that, we wanted in that moment to also actually divest Verizon Media Group. That was Yahoo and AOL. We yes. wanted to buy uh, ourselves into the value segment prepaid. That was TrackPhone. So uh, we basically have done all of those right now. So we are in a moment, we have the assets that we and the go-to-market and the culture that you continue need to nurture uh, in a moment where we can address uh, several different new markets we have never addressed before. Uh, so uh, satisfied is probably never something that comes to my mind because I always try to do better every day I come to office. Uh, but I think that a lot of things that I and we wanted to achieve, we have achieved. But now the real work is because my shareholders have granted me to buy Spectrum for $53 billion the last couple of years. And now it's time to see that we can actually outgrow the market and perform better. And I I feel good about that position we have. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, You you alluded to it earlier in your comments. Uh, You watch market transitions and technology transitions and when you see the two of them occurring together, then's a chance when you have a chance to break away, especially from industry peers who might keep doing the right thing too long. How do you view these transitions going on now? What are the key technology changes? And, and do you agree that you compete when the two occur, you compete on that? You don't compete against competitors. Yeah. First of all, what you see is, of course, uh, a lot of change in the market and, and this unfortunate situation with covid has accelerated some of those trends, meaning that you're always connected, you need to be connected in different places, you need to compute and storage further out in the network, you need to uh, have edge capabilities, IoT capabilities, things that you and I, John, talked about for 10 years ago, IoT going to happen. Now it's happening. And of course, if you have all those macro trends, you need also to have uh, a technology that can support it. And uh, and our initial thought about it was actually to redesign the network so we can have multiple use cases or business cases on one infrastructure, which has never happened before. I have today, I have built a network where I can have a mobility case for consumers. I have broadband on my wireless network. I'm doing mobile edge compute, cloud processing on my wireless network, and I have IoT device on top of it. I never in my life or in the wireless industry, we have been able to build a network that can actually serve multiple business cases at the same time. And that's what we saw in 2017. And that's really what's happening right now. And uh, of course, phones is just one device on the network these days. There are so many others that are consuming so much more data and need much more lower latency. All that was part of the design of what we call the Verizon Intelligent Edge Network, which is the fundamental base of our strategy. Uh, 
so yeah, a lot of the trends you see, uh, home, homeschooling, remote learning, uh, remote uh, healthcare, uh, working from home, all that changes and you need to have a se- seamless technology where you can actually move in between different access points constantly if you're a consumer or a business. Totally different than we have seen before. And then you need to build a network like that. And then on top of that, at the edge of the network, then you come things like the AI, uh, things like virtual reality, augmented reality, things that you can only do when you have built a network like that. I usually said that our network, it's built for metaverse because if you're going to do metaverse, you need low latency and enormous throughput at the edge of the network. Makes tremendous sense. Uh, one of the things I like to ask is, is how do you balance the short term and the quarterly results uh, that people expect with the results for the year, but yet your bets are three and five years out on the direction? And you know, when you look back at January this year, uh, how do you halfway through the year at the end of the year view the tremendous disruption that happened so quickly? I said at the beginning of January when I made the predictions for the year, and Hans, I've got a lot of weaknesses, but I usually get market trends right, is I said, this is going to be a roller coaster year. Uh, you better fasten your seatbelt. Tremendous ups, tremendous downs. The downs are going to feel like there's no bottom in the roller coaster. Your stomach's going to come up into your throat. And about the time you're ready to give up, you're going to whip back up and people are going to get too optimistic uh, again on it. Literally, I realized the market dropping 20% in January, uh, how accurate that was going to be. And secondly, when I said, if you haven't got the stomach for it, you just sit on the side. About three and a half weeks in January, I was wondering, should I follow my own advice and sit on the side? <laughs> so how do you manage through that as a leader and advice uh, uh, for uh, many aspirational people who want to follow what you and, and your peers have done so successfully? No, uh, first of all, I mean, um, not only for the company, also for myself, I balance that. And I just take a, an anecdote. So when I get to be CEO 2009, I asked my chief of staff if he could find some literature what a CEO are supposed to do. And of course, you cannot find anything because there's no literature. What is a CEO doing? I had no idea. So we made a model where basically we put in all the things that I think is important and only a CEO can do. And this is not for a CEO, it could be anyone. And we started to map six areas where I tracking every hour I work, I track them and I do a forecast in advance because my worry is that for, for as many as you say, John, you start working on things that just comes at you that you need to fix tomorrow. It's important for next week, but nobody else is thinking about the three, five and 10 years. So when I look at my schedule in the quarter and was, I, I have three things internally that I need to spend time on and three things externally. And then I allocate in certain times, I spend far much more to time on the long-term strategy of the company than meeting shareholders, for example. And other quarters can be much more with shareholders. Uh, and I've done that now for 13 years. So I actually also have a, 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 a curves how I have spent my time, what I spend time on. That's one way. For a company, I basically do the same in our governance. So I have the core business. I have sort of the next uh, next generation's product, and then I have emergence technologies. And I allocate resources, capital, and governance to all of them. So when I look at, uh, when we have meetings, okay, now we talk about the innovation part, and that's that's the things that is probably 1% of my turnover, uh, but uh, it could be 10, 20% in three to five years. And in 10 years, it can be much more. 
that's how I try to work both with my own time, but also with the company's time and the governance, because the risk is that you always work what is tomorrow uh, and, uh, and the near term, uh, because that's so much more urgent. But if you stretch yourself both in time, governance, resources and capital, that's the only way in large corporations you can be able to do it. It sounds easy. It's super difficult. <laughs> yes, we know. It's super, super difficult. It's most difficult I have in my life is to see that I'm fair and doing that right work for my customers, my shareholders, employees, and society. Because ultimately, I have four stakeholders that I need to manage, and but I need to do it in these three buckets. You know, it's fascinating. Uh, both of us believe on getting market transitions and technology transitions together. The biggest transition, maybe since the internet and the cloud will be the cloud moving to the edge. We said earlier, Internet of Things, the 500 billion devices connected, uh, uh, everything that goes with it. But at the core, bringing that to life is 5G. You have been the top bidder on 5G. You positioned Verizon unbelievably well for it. Uh, how does this play out? And you know, and it's easy to say now that was the right decision. Uh, but you know, a couple of years ago, getting people on board, and I'm sure people kind of saying, are you sure uh, it might not have been so easy? How did you approach that? And uh, where do you think the state of play is in terms of what 5G can really do to change the experience of every consumer, self-driving cars, uh, everything done at the edge of key transactions? It started actually in 2017 when I was thinking about our network and we would go. And then one thing that is very different from the fifth generation wireless technology, 5G, is that 1G to 4G was basically designed designed for consumers, speed and throughput. Think about it. You spoke on the phone, and then ultimately on 4G, you can stream on the phone. But it was very clear it was not about being uh, consumer solutions, and it would be uh, an easy way. 5G, when the design of 5G started, we were thinking much more about enterprise solutions and societal solutions. And that's why 5G has eight capabilities. They have everything from low latency. Uh, I give an example on on the uh, on a, a number of devices connected. So in the 4G network, you can roughly have 60,000 uh, connected devices per square kilometers. That's a stadium that you can have, everybody can connect it. In 5G, you can have 1 million. You're never going to have 1 million people in one square kilometer. So it was already thought that it's going to be a totally different way. So that's two. I mean, then security is much higher because we know that uh, when enterprises have a higher degree of security thinking, uh, it was the way we can slice the network, do different things. And then, of course, throughput and speed are 10x better, both of them. All that open up a totally different way. And basically, three business cases on the same infrastructure. One was to do the mobility case, doing it even better for consumer. The other was uh, uh, actually instead of doing building fiber to the homes uh, in places, we're going to build uh, uh, fixed wireless access to the homes with the same capability, that, but it's much faster because you use the radio waves, it's going faster. And finally, bringing the mobile edge compute, the cloud to the edge of the network. And that we do together with cloud providers, but they're part of a network in order to get the capability. So that was how we thought in 2017 when we designed what we call the 5G strategy. And we are in the midst of design, executing on that and start having traction on all of them in a big way. I mean, uh, when I reported uh, earlier uh, our earnings, I talked about that now we have 30, almost 30, one third of all our customers have a 5G phone. And that's 
far quicker than the take up on 4G phones, which we had uh, in the previous cycle, which people don't realize. Big ecosystem takes time and you need to think well in advance how you're going to build in order to capture the opportunities. You know, when you think about it, you and I believe the same things in many areas. Uh, the equalizers in life, my parents taught me was education and being in the right spot. Uh, the equalizer in the future is all about connectivity and being able to participate uniquely in that. 5G really has the chance to help bridge that uh, economic uh, divide uh, to do so and benefit economically for the company, but also for society and, and governance and inclusion. How do you think about that? How do you explain it both to your employees, to your shareholders, and to the market? So one of the things I worked on for probably 15 years is the digital divide because I learned pretty, uh, pretty early on that mobility, broadband, and cloud were the only infrastructure that can actually uh, equalize and, uh, and see that uh, our society have equal opportunities. And it doesn't really matter where you're born or where you live or where you come from because mobility, broadband, and cloud, if you can get access to that, you can actually get high quality education, you can get high quality healthcare, etc. And not everyone is born where, where I was, where I had uh, five minutes to the school and I had five minutes to a hospital. If we're going to capture and get everybody the same chance, we need to use the 21st century's infrastructure. That's mobility, uh, broadband and cloud. That's why I worked with that for many years. And it's part of our strategy, of course, because I build mobility, broadband and cloud. So there's no difference here. But clearly, I will give you one stat there and you would know it, John. I mean, Today, okay. ho- half of the world's population uh, uh, is not connected to the internet. That means they don't have an equal chance as anybody else. But the most important thing is that 85% of these people are actually covered by broadband, either mobile broadband and normal broadband. And then you ask yourself, why are they not using it? Uh, accessibility is the case because there's still 15% of them that don't have access. There are no coverage affordability is an enormous challenge because you don't need not only need a, a broadband connection, you need a device uh, and uh, may, can be a computer. That's very difficult in many cases. And finally, uh, you need to have application that is useful, healthcare application uh, or education, remote learning uh, solutions or governmental solutions that ultimately. So I usually talk about the three-pronged strategy you need, accessibility, affordability, and the applications. And it, it's not one of them. You need all three of them. But we have a fantastic foundation for getting much more people being part of our society equal chance because the majority of the Earth population actually are covered by more mobile broadband or broadband. Uh, and that's what I've been working with for the last 10, 15 years, years in the UN. And nowadays, I also lead the work with the Edison Alliance, which is a a big initiative uh, with the World Economic Forum and where I'm the chairman addressing uh, that we want the next five years to have one billion people more being part of our digital society. Changing the world for the better, tech for good. Uh, Lord <laughs> knows we need to do that. Switching to leadership lessons and lessons learned, sharing again with our audience. Uh, when you think about top leaders, when you interview them for your company or you see them in society, what are the common characteristics or values they have? Uh, and the same thing when you promote people in your company. What are you looking for in terms of the characteristics that are most important to you? Uh, it, it, here you come to my leadership principles very clearly. So I would actually start with myself. Uh, I have a three 
strong model in, in leadership. And I start always with my self-leadership. Because if I know myself well, I'm going to know what type of people I need around me. So I, I need all types of people with all types of, uh, of, of strength uh, and talents. And, uh, you know, I'm not good at many things. I mean, there are very few things. I, I have a lot of weaknesses. And in my world, I double down on my strength. I need to be even better on the strength I have, but I need to compensate my weaknesses with people that are uh, complementing me in those areas. So for me, it's more a mix of talents. The more mix and diversity I have, the better I perform. And that's why I have people that are so different than me. They're born in different places. They have different back education. They've worked in different industries. Uh, and that's how I actually look when I when so when I start when I'm going to recruit somebody to my team I usually weigh them 50 50 50 percent that they're going to fix their job 50 percent that they add new capabilities to the team that's equally important to me as they're doing the job well so I, I'm more like that I usually don't say I need more of that or more of that it's more of finding that diversity and dynamic in the in a team that is absolutely crucial to be successful and as I said you need to compensate your own weaknesses to see that you have the strength of a team. When you think about uh, your success uh, and what you evolve as a leader, are you more a product of your successes or more product of your setbacks and your failures? <laughs> you know, uh, and you would know this, John, you know, it's not like when you're running a company or have been running companies that you feel that you have a success. Uh, you always feel that... I have still a lot more to do in order to feel that I'm successful. I, I come to work every day and I feel that this day is probably the day I'm going to do something great. Uh, and I think that has to be in your genes if you're going to survive and actually do a good job. You, you strive to be better every inch, every second to do better things. And uh, I think that I'm still in that. Much of that comes, of course, from my childhood and how I've been raised by my parents and, and how I've been fighting all my life, born in a very small city in the northern part of Sweden. Basically, didn't leave Sweden until I was over 20. So, of course, for me, it comes a lot with my heritage and how my, my father uh, uh, educated me to, to live. And, and that I still do. So I think it's more about failures and how I've learned to deal with failures because the amount of decisions you take every day, you do you do bad decisions that later you're going to you're going to realize the most important is you learn from them and you take it forward. And actually next time you're not going to do the same mistake. You're going to ask in a different way. And I think that's probably how I will learn and how I'm going forward. Got it. Maybe one lesson learned in leadership that you know now that you wish you knew and you understood 25 years ago, what would it be that you could share with the audience? Depends a little. In my case, I was extremely ambitious. And of course, I, I, I never had any, any views that I'm going to have uh, these type of jobs in my future. But I always wanted to succeed. I wanted to do better. And of course, yes. uh, in, that in that work, uh, uh, when I was 25, 30, I was not a good uh, colleague to my peers. I mean, I, I, I probably didn't treat them well. I probably uh, put my elbows a little bit too hard. I, I saw that my boss looked good. I saw that my team was looking good. And I remember one time when I was called in to a, a, a talk with my boss and uh, he, he asked me, so 
do you want to be the CEO of Ericsson? He asked me. I remember that. And I said, of course I want to be. I thought, oh, I'm on the road. He said, you will never get it. There is no way. Because all your peers, they never want to work with you. They don't want to have you as your boss because you're, you're not treating them well. And I think that I learned because I had a great leader that saw that I probably could have I had some capabilities, but I need to be better to help my, my colleagues to succeed as well. And uh, of course, from that moment, I learned a lot how to work with my colleagues to see that I lifted them. Whatever I knew, I gave them as well, because if I lifted them, everybody lifted. Uh, so I think that could have learned that a little bit earlier than maybe uh, when I learned it. But all in all, I, I got good advice from all my leaders that I've been reporting to in my, in my career. But that was probably one important one. Last question. It's one that's near and dear to my heart. Innovation in the future. So much of the innovation is coming out of startups globally. And Hans, maybe for the first time ever, it isn't about Silicon Valley. It's about innovation centers from Bangalore to Silicon Valley to New York uh, to London to Paris. And at a scale we haven't seen before. How do you capture that innovation from startups, yet realizing a large company relying too much on startups has risk? How do you get your organization comfortable with that or not? And maybe advice for people on both sides listening to this broadcast in terms of innovation is about doing both internal and external. And a lot of the external will come from the small players. How do you teach them kind of lessons learned on that is the last question for this podcast. Uh, John, I think that you're absolutely right. Large corporations are historically not super good to work with startups. Uh, we usually have too much uh, bureaucracy coming there and trying to help them, which probably are slowing them down more. What we have been trying to do, and I know that was uh, also what you did in your previous life, is of course to see that you have certain organization that works with them that are more nimble and it's reflecting more the innovation you have from these uh, startups in order both for them to get the scale that I can give, give them, but also uh, seeing that we get the innovation and the speed that these companies have. So basically at Verizon, we have our uh, innovation uh, sort of uh, emerging technologies in a small group uh, for the totality here. And they are dealing with them in order to see when they see that they are scalable enough, we bring them into the core business. That's how it works. Sometimes in co-partnership, sometimes equity ownership, uh, sometimes just a joint venture, depending a little bit uh, what is best for the, for the, for the startup. Because then sometimes we can burden them to be an equity owner because others don't want to work with them. So you need to be listening much more. But this is hard, John. Uh, and uh, I think we are starting to get there more and more uh, and to see that we bring that technology in and seeing that we scale and help the startups as well. Because ultimately, our fortune in Verizon is that we have as many people as possible working in 5G, AI, VR, AR, all of that metaverse, because ultimately they're going to be the users of the network. So the more innovation we have on the top of the network, the better it is. I love it. A great way to end up on that. Hans, I think people listening to this, I was sitting here taking notes. I'll put more of them together afterwards. It's always fun sharing dreams together, uh, learning together what's possible. Uh, you're an amazing leader. And I, I don't say compliments, I don't mean, but I trust you with my life. Uh, I think you've looked at over time. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening to this session of Chambers Talks. I'd like to uh, remind you to rate uh, the session and tell us what we could do better. 
But Hans, I want to mainly thank you for spending the time with the group today. Uh, friends for life. Thank you, Johan. It was a pure pleasure. And, and again, we are friends for life. We have done great things together, but even more to do, Johan. Thank you. Agreed.